chapter 11, verses 29 through 54. Verses 29 through 32. And when the people were gathered thick together, he began to say, This is an evil generation. They seek a sign, and there shall be no sign given it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For as Jonah was a sign unto the Ninevites, so shall also the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South shall rise up in the judgment with the men of this generation, and shall condemn them. For she came from the utmost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, a greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh shall rise up in the judgment with this generation, and shall condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, a greater than Jonah is here. Burkett notes, The sign which the Pharisees here desired of our Savior was a miracle wrought by him. Now our Savior Though he was very ready to work miracles to encourage and confirm his hearers' faith, yet not to satisfy the unbelieving Pharisees' curiosity. And accordingly, he tells them they should have no other sign than that of his resurrection, which Jonah was a type of. Next, he threatens them for their obstinacy and infidelity, which he aggravates from the example of the Queen of the South and the men of Nineveh. From Lentz learned that the sins of infidelity and impenitency are exceedingly heightened and their guilt aggravated from the means afforded by God to bring men to faith and obedience. The sin of the Pharisee was infinitely greater in rejecting the evidence of Christ's miracles than the sin of the Ninevites would have been in refusing to hearken to Jonah's ministry. Therefore, the Ninevites shall condemn the Pharisees. Verses 33 to 36. No man, when he hath lighted a candle, put it in a secret place neither under a bushel, but on a candlestick, that they which come in may see the light. The light of the body is the eye. Therefore, when thine eye is single, thy whole body also is full of light. But when thy eye is evil, thy body is full of darkness. Take heed, therefore, that the light which is in thee be not darkness. If thy whole body, therefore, be full of light, having no part dark, the whole shall be full of light, as when the bright shining of a candle doth give thee light. Burkett notes, Our Savior, in these words, does these two things. One, he declares that although his ministry had no effect upon the proud and obstinate Pharisees, yet he would not hide the light which he came into the world to bring, nor conceal that heavenly doctrine which his Father had committed to him to communicate to the children of men, teaching us that such as are enlightened by God with the knowledge of his word and will ought not to conceal and hide this knowledge within themselves, but communicate it to others and improve it for the good and benefit of others. No man that lighteth a candle putteth it under a bushel. 2. Our Savior here discovers the reason why the Pharisees continued blind under so clear a light as that of his ministry, namely, because the eye of their understanding was darkened, not so much with ignorance as with prejudice, whereby they opposed Christ and his holy doctrine. For if the mind be clearly enlightened by the word and spirit of God, the light will diffuse and spread itself in the soul, as the bright shining of a candle doth in the house, enlightening all the inward faculties, and directing all the outward actions, and communicating its light also to the enlightening of others. Verses 37 through 40. And as he spake, a certain Pharisee besought him to dine with him, and he went in and sat down to meet. And when the Pharisee saw it, he marveled that he not first washed before dinner. And the Lord said unto him, Now do ye Pharisees make clean the outside of a cup and the platter, 
but your inward part is full of ravening and wickedness. Ye fools, did not he that make that which is without make that which is within also? Burkett notes, Observe here, 1. The free conversation of our blessed Savior. How readily he complies with the Pharisees' invitation to dine with him. I do not find that when Christ was invited to any table, that ever he refused to go. If a Pharisee, if a publican invited him, he constantly went, not so much for the pleasure of eating, as for the opportunity of conversing and doing good. Christ feasts us when we feed him. He says of himself that he came eating and drinking, that is, allowing himself a free, though innocent, conversation with all sorts of persons, that he might gain some. Observe, too, the exception which the Pharisee takes at our Savior's not washing his hands before dinner. This they made, but without any warrant for it, a religious act, abounding in external washings and neglecting the inward purgation of their hearts and consciences from sin and uncleanness. Thus, pharisaical hypocrisy puts God off with an outward cleansing instead of an inward purity, regarding more the outward cleanness of the hand than the inward purity of the heart. Observe 3. Our blessed Savior does not condemn any external decency and cleanliness in conversation, but his design is to show the vanity of outward purity without inward sanctity, and to convince them of the necessity of cleaning the heart in order to the purifying and reforming the life. The Pharisee washed his hands clean, but left his soul full of uncleanness, not considering that he that made the soul as well as the body requires that both should be kept pure, all the impiety of men's lives proceeding from the impurity of their hearts and natures. Verse 41. But rather give alms of such things as you have, and behold, all things are clean unto you. Burkett notes, as if Christ had said, the way to purify your meats and drinks and estates from all pollution cleaving to them, and to have them sanctified blessings to you, is, in conjunction with other graces, by doing works of mercy, and by liberal almsgiving according to your ability. Learn that charity and almsgiving according to our ability and opportunity is a special means to sanctify our estates to us, and to cause us wholly and comfortably to enjoy what we do possess. Give alms of such things as ye have, and behold, all things are clean unto you. As if Christ had said, your temporal enjoyments are unclean, that is, unlawful to be used by you, till you have sanctified them by some act of charity, which will procure a blessing upon your substance. Verse 42. But woe unto you, Pharisees, for ye tie the mint and rule, and all manner of herbs, and pass over judgment in the love of God. These ought ye to have done, and not to leave the other undone. Burkett notes, Our Savior here denounces a woe against the Pharisees for their strict and scrupulous observing of the lesser things of the law, as tithing with mint and rue, while they were regardless of the principal and substantial duties which they owed both to God and man. Learn hence that although some duties are of greater moment and importance than others, yet a good man will omit none, but make conscience of all, both great and small, in obedience to the command of God. There is no duty so little as to be neglected, no command so small as to be disobeyed. But yet there is a difference in duties, and our first regard ought to be to the greater than to the less. Christ does not condemn them for tithing mint and rue, but for passing over judgment and the love of God. Verse 43. 
Woe unto ye Pharisees, for ye love the uppermost seats in the synagogues and the greetings in the markets. Burkett notes, The next woe denounced against the Pharisees is for their ambition, pride, and popularity, affecting the uppermost seats in the synagogue and salutations in the markets, where their fault was not in taking, but in affecting these uppermost places. God is the God of order. There may and ought to be a precedency among persons. Honor is given to whom honor is due, and that by God's command. But pride and ambition are detestable vices, especially in such as are preachers, and ought to be the patterns of humility. Verse 44. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye are as graves which appear not, and the men that walk over them are not aware of them. Burkett notes, Another woe is here denounced against the Pharisees for cheating and deceiving the people with an outward show and appearance of piety and religion. They were like graves and sepulchres grown over with grass, which though they held dead men's bones, yet the putrefaction not outwardly appearing, men walk unawares over them, and so were polluted by them, intimating that the inward rottenness and filthy corruptions of the Pharisees not appearing unto men, the people were easily deceived by outward shows of pharisaical sanctity, and so fell into a dangerous imitation of them. Learn hence that the great design of hypocrites is to cheat the world with an empty show of piety. The hypocrite's ambition is to be thought good, not to be so. Learn, too, that nothing is more fatally dangerous to the soul of men and draws persons to an admiration and imitation of their hypocritical professors like their outward show of sanctity and their extraordinary appearances of devotion and piety. This it was that gained the Pharisees such a veneration and esteem among the people, that it became a proverb among them, but if two men went to heaven, the one must be a Pharisee. But their counterfeit piety, being double iniquity, they did receive for it double damnation. Verses 45 and 46. Then answered one of the lawyers, and said unto him, Master, thus saying, thou reproachest us also. And he said, Woe unto you also, ye lawyers, for ye laid men with burdens grievous to be borne, and ye yourselves touch not the burdens with one of your fingers. Burkett notes, The former woes were denounced by our Savior against the Pharisee, who had their names from a Hebrew word which signifies to separate, because they were persons separated and set apart for studying the law of God and teaching it to others. The next woe is here denounced against the lawyers, that is, the scribes of the law, of which there were two sorts, the civil scribe and the ecclesiastical scribe. The civil scribe was a public notary, or registrar of the synagogue, employed in writing of bills of divorce and sentences in the phylacteries. The ecclesiastical scribe was an expounder of the scripture and an interpreter of the law, men of great learning and knowledge, whose decrees and interpretations the Pharisees strictly observed. This lawyer here insolently calls our Savior's reproof a reproach. However, our Savior, who never feared the face or regarded the person of any man, gives them their portion and lets them know wherein they were faulty, as well as the Pharisee, and accordingly pronounces a woe unto them also, for a threefold crime. One, for their laying heavy burdens upon others' shoulders, which they would not touch with one of their fingers. These burdens in general were a rigid exaction of obedience in the whole ceremonial law, and in particular the burden of traditions, certain austerities and severities which they imposed upon the people, but would not undergo any part of themselves. 
In vain do we hope to oblige our hearers to follow those rules of life which we refuse or neglect to put in practice ourselves. Verses 47 through 50. Woe unto you, for ye build the sepulchres of the prophets, and your fathers killed them. Truly ye bear witness that ye allowed the deeds of your father, for they indeed killed them, and ye build their sepulchres. Therefore also said the wisdom of God, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they shall slay and persecute. That the blood of all the prophets, which was shed from the foundation of the world, may be required of this generation, from the blood of Abel unto the blood of Zacharias, which perished between the altar and the temple. Verily I say unto you, it shall be required of this generation. Burkett notes, The second crime which Christ reproves in these men is their grand hypocrisy in pretending great honor to the saints departed, building their tombs and garnishing their sepulchres, disclaiming against their fathers impiety that had they lived in their day, they would not have been partakers with them in their sins. Now their hypocrisy appeared in three particulars. One, in that they continued in their own wickedness and yet commended the saints departed. They magnify the saints, but multiply their sins. And instead of imitating their virtues, they content themselves with garnishing their sepulchres. Two, in professing great respect to the dead saints, and at the same time persecuting the living. Palpable hypocrisy. And yet, as gross as it is, prevails to this day. The Church of Rome, which magnifies martyrs, canonizes saints departed, have added to their number by the shedding of their blood. Three, in taking false measure of their love to the saints departed, from their building their tombs and garnishing their sepulchres. Whereas the best evidence of our love to them is the imitating their virtue and cherishing their followers. Tis gross hypocrisy to pay respect to the relics of saints and veneration to their images, and at the same time to persecute and hate their followers. From the whole, note one, that the world has all along loved dead saints better than living ones. The dead saint's example, how bright soever, is not scorching or troublesome at a distance, and he himself stands no longer in other man's light, whereas the living saint's example is a cutting reproof to sin and vice. Note, too, that there is a certain civility in human nature which leads men to a just commendation of the dead and to a due estimation of their worth. The Pharisees, though they persecuted the prophets whilst alive, yet did they pretend to a mighty veneration for their piety and virtue after they were dead, and thought no honor too great to be done unto them. Note three, that it is the greatest hypocrisy imaginable to pretend to love goodness and at the same time to hate and persecute good men. These Pharisees and lawyers pretend high to piety and religion and at the same time killed the prophets. Note four that the highest honor we can pay to saints departed is not by raising monuments and building tombs to their memory, but by a careful imitation of their piety and virtue, following the holiness of their lives and their patience and constancy at their deaths. Lastly, learn that it is a righteous thing with God to punish children for the impiety of their parents when they walk in the ungodly parents' footsteps. Upon you shall come the blood of all the prophets, from the blood of Abel, to the blood of Zacharias. Yet must this be understood of temporal evils, not of eternal punishments. No man for his father's sin shall lie down in everlasting burnings. As our father's faith will not let us into heaven, so neither will their impiety shut us into hell. At the day of judgment, every man shall be separately considered according to his own deeds. Verse 52. 
and woe unto you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. Ye entered not into yourselves, and them that were entering in ye hindered. Burkett notes, The last woe pronounced by our Savior against the scribes and Pharisees is for perverting the Holy Scriptures and keeping the true sense and knowledge of them from the people. This St. Luke here calls the taking away the key of knowledge from men, alluding to a custom among Jews in admission of their doctors, those that had authority given to them to interpret the law and the prophets, were solemnly admitted into that office by delivering to them a key and a table book, so that by the key of knowledge is meant the interpretation and understanding of the scriptures. And by taking away that key is signified, one, that they arrogated to themselves the sole power of understanding and interpreting the Holy Scriptures. Two, that they kept the true knowledge of the Scriptures from the people, especially the prophecies which concerned the kingdom and the coming of the Messiah. And so they hindered men from embracing our Savior's doctrine, who were otherwise well enough disposed for it. Learn, one, that the written word is the key whereby an entrance into heaven is opened unto men. Two, that the use of this key, or the knowledge of the Word of God, is absolutely and indispensably necessary in order to salvation. Three, that great is the guilt and inexcusable the fault of those who deny the people the use of this key and deprive them of the knowledge of the Holy Scriptures, which alone can make them wise unto salvation. Four, that such as do so shut the kingdom of heaven against men, in devouring what in them lies to hinder their salvation. Men may miscarry with their knowledge, but they are sure to perish for lack of knowledge. Verses 53 and 54. And as he said these things unto them, the scribes and Pharisees began to urge him vehemently and to provoke him to speak of many things, laying wait for him and seeking to catch something out of his mouth that they might accuse him. Burkett notes. Observe here, 1. How our blessed Savior's plain and faithful dealing with these men doth enrage instead of reforming them. They are filled with anger and indignation. 2. Their wrath sets their wits on work to ensnare him. Lord, when any of thy faithful ministers and ambassadors meet with the like usage and treatment from a wicked world, when any lie and wait to catch something out of our mouths, that therewith they may ensnare us, give us thy prudence and thy patience, that we may cut off occasion from those that seek occasion against us, and disappoint them of their purpose, or else furnish us with such measures of meekness and patience as becomes persons of our holy character and profession, that we may glory in reproaches, in prosecutions, and distresses, for Christ's sake, and that the Spirit of glory and of God may rest upon us.